Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Previously on Dead and Gone. You're part of it now. You're in the land of the lost now. Prosecution's case at trial relied on circumstantial evidence. There's no evidence directly tying him to the murders themselves. The best evidence was Vivian Searcy, a credible account of an alternative perpetrator that was never in any way investigated, a guy named Bo. True crime, Grateful Dead, I have a little story that might be of interest. Weston confronted Bo and said to him, how can you sleep at night? Why were you washing your hands? He was a weird dude. The first show that I went to, that was all anybody was talking about. Greg and Mary were murdered and that Bo and Weston had something to do with it. It was definitely just an assumed truth in the Grateful Dead community that Bo and Weston had something to do with it, and International did not. I'm with Anne. That's not her real name. This case is quite personal for her, so she asked that we change it for her privacy. In the case of Mary and Greg's murder, the name Bo was appearing everywhere. And now it seemed that a new name was emerging, a guy named Weston. It was Weston who confronted Bo that night in Robert's apartment, asking, how can you sleep at night? And why were you washing your hands? In the Grateful Dead community, the names Bo and Weston became synonymous with the Rainbow Village murders. Looking back at this time, aside from this tragedy, Anne's memories are very fond. We were beautiful, mostly because we were young, but well-intentioned, big heart. There'll never be anything else like that again. The best years of my life. Yeah, I learned so much. I learned, it was better than college, for sure. I learned so much. I learned how to support myself. I learned that I could make a living off of my artwork and, and my creativity. I learned finance by watching people sell drugs and watching the, the econ- economics of drug sales. It's like the economics of selling anything that there's a demand for. You know, you bond so fast with people during these shows. In 85, she was traveling the country, following the Grateful Dead a tight group of friends shuffling from one city to the next. Among them was 18-year-old Greg Niffen. Greg was just, he was the sweetest kid. He was 18. 
His parents didn't want him to go on tour. He sort of ran away from home to go on tour. He was having really unhappy conversations with his parents on the phone. I had given him my wristwatch as a present, and it was found in the drag marks of his body. I know that. The day before the murders, Anne flew to Australia. That first night she was there, she had a strange dream. I had a dream that I saw Greg's body in water, deep, dark, murky water with a bullet hole in the middle of his forehead. Very unusual, fucking bizarre. It was really disturbing. Greg was such a sweet fucking kid, just a fucking kid. I would just like to understand how how he was there, how somebody would want to break his knees and shoot him in the head. I can't even imagine being jealous of him. He wasn't adult enough to be threatening. He was so lost. He was just a kid trying to sort out what he was doing next. Yeah. I had been friends with Bo on and off in 1985. I camped with him in the woods in Santa Cruz and rode in his car from a couple of shows. And he was older than us and uh, he had a vehicle. But I just feel like he had a past that he disappeared completely from and come be with Grateful Dead. He was a weird dude. There was a lot going on under the surface. Why was Bo seen wiping his hands in the grass? Why was he seen washing his hands? We were all just kids, we were all so young. It would be very easy to take advantage of that, being in a big group, to hide. For Baum, if he had some past that he was escaping, really good place to hide those behaviors. There was a lot of predators in the Grateful Dead scene. Because we were just so young and innocent. Anne knew Bo around the time of the murders. But this was 35 years ago. I mean, I don't think he's still alive, honestly. Why is that? I have a memory of seeing him after all this went down in San Francisco, living in a van doing heroin. Let's say Bo was 30, around 30, 75. I mean, what are the chances? Slim. Bo had dropped out of the Grateful Dead scene altogether. Besides that San Francisco sighting, she never saw him again. But there was also Weston. Weston? He up sticks also. He left when police started poking around further to try and get in touch with more people that might be able to follow up the Bo Weston connection. He disappeared. Just like Bo, Weston dropped out of the scene too. This unique timing left an impression without a doubt. But were they just moving on in life? Or were they running from something? I would like to see if you could shake loose some information that somebody hasn't shared before that would either exonerate or prove that International was the murderer. I'd like to see justice for him and his family more than anything else. To know what happened that night, to know who inflicted the beatings on Mary and Greg and then shot them. I would love to know that. I just, I could see how you could block out shooting somebody or whatever, or put that in your back pocket of your mind. 
the images that whoever perpetrated the injuries must have in their mind of that time, it, it must be a, a hell of a thing to live with. I have no idea what the motive, what anybody's motivation for murdering them could have been. That's, I haven't heard anything about why international or Bo or Western or anybody would want to kill them. And like that. That's what I'm hoping you guys can find out. I feel like you guys got to shake something out of the trees that can be talked about now that couldn't be talked about 35 years ago. There were only so many people in Rainbow Village that night. A few dozen, that's it. Ralph International Thomas was one of them. But were Bo and Weston there too? Vivian Searcy says so. At least she saw Bo. And she did describe what could have been a second person. The man who threatened to kill her when she was sitting in the car. With decades gone by, finding anyone at all has been a daunting task. Still no luck on Vivian. And I'm starting to think she may not be around anymore. But thankfully... Robert had someone else he wanted me to talk to. Do you ever wish you could become a detective and help find the clues to the case? How about all of that in a mobile game that you can take anywhere? In June's Journey, each scene leads to a new thrilling storyline. Uncover the mystery of June's sister's murder and find out about scandalous family secrets. The gameplay lets you find hidden clues as you investigate a murder mystery. Escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Let your imagination run wild when decorating your island estate and collect scraps of information to fill your photo album and learn more about each character. Whether you're craving a good mystery or looking for an escape, you can immerse yourself in the world of June Parker. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story taking you back to the glamour of the 1920s with a diverse cast of characters. Each new scene takes you further through a thrilling murder mystery story that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. I travel so much while working that I personally love to play it while sitting around airports with all of that free time I have. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. At Alma, we know the connection between you and your therapist matters. But if you're already feeling stressed and burnt out, the idea of trying to find a therapist you really connect with can be overwhelming. That's why Alma's focused on helping you find the right therapist for you. When you browse their online directory, you can filter your search based on the qualities that are most important to you. Then you can book a free 15-minute consultation call with any therapist you're interested in seeing. So you can get a feel for whether they're the right fit before you commit to a full-length session. Alma also makes it easy for mental health care providers to navigate insurance. That's why 95% of therapists in their directory accept insurance for sessions. So you can find care that's affordable without stressing about the paperwork. You want to talk to someone, but not just anyone. Alma is there to help you find the right fit. Visit HelloAlma.com Therapy60 to schedule a free consultation today. That's HelloAlma.com Therapy60. Hello? Hey, Dave, it's Payne. Hey, Payne. You just come into the driveway. There's a, an open gate. You just come into the backyard. His name was Dave, a.k.a. Alabama Dave. Like most things I've experienced this far, again, I had no idea what to expect. I was this naive kid from Alabama, from, you know, this kind of upper-middle-class suburb. I hated it. You know, I hated growing up there. I hated, you know, I just, I just didn't like any of it. 
here's this really cool guy with long blonde hair and selling shirts barefoot on a Mexican blanket. I just thought the guy was so cool and like he was kind of the survivalist. In the mid 80s, Dave moved from Alabama to California. Unsure of what he wanted to do with his life, he jumped headfirst into the Grateful Dead scene. Not too long after, he met a tall blonde man who was selling tie-dyes, named Bo. A lot of deadheads spent time at Greyhound Rock, which is in Davenport Beach, which is just a little bit north of Santa Cruz. He hung out in Santa Cruz. I think I made it for about a week or two. I mean, he was camping in the woods in a sleeping bag. I wasn't into hanging out in the woods and evading reality as much as I was into hanging out with a bunch of deadheads and seeing dead shows and doing what deadheads do. Bo just lived kind of on the edge or outside of the edge of, of that whole world. So like even him being at dead shows was a little bit odd. I think Bo felt anti-society. He was happy to live on the beach in Davenport Beach in Santa Cruz and collect food stamps and live incredibly minimal life. That was my impression of him. He was, he was really on his own and could care less about what anybody else was doing. Dave hung out with Bo for a number of weeks, starting in February of 1986. This would have been around five to six months after the murders. One day he spent with Bo is forever burned in his memory. I had met this girl and it just didn't work out. I had met the girl 30 days before and I was head over heels in love with her and it just didn't work out. I got a ride home with this guy, this kind of cool hippie guy, Bo, the whole way back. I'm telling him how I'm just heartbroken. I'm just kind of lost over this girl. We're about to smoke pot. We're sitting in the car. I was just heartbroken, complaining about how awful that was. And Bo just basically said, women are evil. I killed my own brother over a girl. I mean, I, I grew up in uh, Mountain Brook, Alabama, this kind of upper middle class suburb of Birmingham. And I had no idea what that meant. I killed my own brother over a girl. Did it feel like he was being serious and not kidding? No, he wasn't kidding. He wasn't a real funny guy. Looking back at it, I mean, he meant it. I have no doubt in my mind that, that he was serious. It wasn't a figurative, it wasn't symbolic. He was honest. He probably didn't mean his brother, he meant a close friend or a fellow deadhead. You're tight with this person, they're, they're your brother. I mean, it's hard to imagine that you'd say something like that. You killed your brother over a girl, and that if he killed two people, that he had such disrespect for women that he only cared that he killed his brother over a girl. It's pretty fucked up when you think about it. So yeah, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I can tell you exactly what we were doing. I know exactly where we were. That moment's kind of frozen in my mind. That moment has stuck with me for my whole life. According to Dave, it didn't feel like Bo was kidding around when he said women are evil and that he once killed a brother over a girl. This statement scared him, and he's never forgotten it. The reality is, it could have been me. I mean, I, I was a young deadhead hanging out the same way that they were hanging out, and they were in the wrong place at the wrong time. There are a lot of people who thought 
it wasn't international, it was somebody else. If Bo committed murder, he should be punished for it. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's wrong. I, I read an article that Mary's parents were happy to see that international had died. They're happy the wrong guy died. I don't know how much he knows that people think that he did this, or if it's just completely wrong that, you know, rumors and innuendos, I mean, it's a pretty wild scene in 1986, hanging around, and there's maybe some people doing some drugs, and and it could be completely, completely wrong. I mean, International really could have done it, and Bo could have just gotten confused and mixed up in the, in the whole mess. I mean, this is all scary to me. I'm a completely different person than I was in 1986, right? I've got a family and kids, and all sorts of stuff happened around dead shows, and it, it all makes me nervous to even get involved in anything remotely like this. After a short while, he stopped hanging out with Bo. But Dave was still a part of the Grateful Dead scene, touring the country. I was at a dead show in Anaheim in in 1987 and hanging out with this kid named Donnie, uh, Donnie from Kentucky. Donnie goes, hey man, did you hear there was a, somebody got killed out here last night? And I go, no shit. And as he's telling me that, he looks up and he goes, there's the guy that they said did it. As I look up to see who he's talking about, the guy disappears behind the building. I'm tracking, waiting for him to come out and thinking, it's gonna be Bo, I know it's gonna be Bo. And doom, there's Bo. I don't know what happened. I mean, there was no evidence to it, but it was just kind of more more to the myth of Bo and, and what had happened. I, I don't know. I mean, it, you know, a fear of, of who this guy was, that I knew somebody had murdered somebody, that I, I had this information. I hadn't really communicated as well as I could have or maybe should have. And it was my own bias that said, I know it's going to be Bo who's going to come on the other side of that building. And it was Bo who came out of the other side of that building. Just a creepy story, a strange moment. But Dave knew in his gut that it was going to be Bo came around the corner. And it was. When Dave began to hear the whispers of Bo's potential involvement in Greg and Mary's murders, what Bo had told him in the car that one day started setting off red flags. There's a code, right? Deadheads, you know, if you know the person who's supplying the pot or the LSD, you'd never tell. There's a code that you don't tell on anybody. That's just part of the code. Don't be a snitch. Part of the Grateful Dead philosophy he had embraced was not being a snitch. But when Dave learned about these murders and started piecing things together, he was compelled to do something about it. We called the cops on Bo. We called Santa Cruz Police Department. We said, there's this guy who we think murdered Greg and Mary. He left an anonymous voicemail with the Santa Cruz police, stating that they should look into Bo as a potential suspect. But he never heard back. After all, his story was just circumstantial. But it certainly seemed more convincing than anything the cops had on Ralph International Thomas. International being convicted had everything to do with him being a black guy. You know, somebody with a felony conviction or some history is easy to pin the murder on him and not make any attempt to find who really committed the crime. It's just wrong, right? Let's. I don't want to see somebody going to jail or being convicted or 
a day or a week is too much time to spend in jail if you're innocent of it. So 30 years, right? If my little piece of information helps bring the truth out, I'd want that to fit in a picture frame. I, I, I got goosebumps, which I'm getting now. If Bo killed somebody, he should pay for it. There's a lot of situations where people just have a hard time with the way our culture works and the, the demands and the pressure that our culture puts on people, right? To be successful, especially in the suburbs where I grew up, where everybody went to college. I mean, the, the number of doctors and lawyers and political leaders in my friend group, I mean, that's what everybody did. And I, I, I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to stay in, in Birmingham and, and be a lawyer or work for my dad's furniture store. I, I wanted a different life. And so here's a group of people who care about each other. We're in this communal kind of living situation where we're all having fun and, and enjoying each other. And we've kind of escaped from the rat race. I could not imagine myself working a nine to five at that point in my life. I and mean, I just like, I couldn't even begin to fathom yeah. what that would be like. I went around the country with no money, with, with nothing, you know, no cell phones. It was an incredible experience of meeting people I could show up at Giant Stadium with 60, 70,000 people, and within minutes, it's like, oh, hey, there's Megan. Hey, there's Robert. And we all just found one another. You know, you went through this experience together. You just create these friendships and this tightness and this survival that felt special. It just felt, it just felt right. I think it added to my ability to, to do a great job in my profession as you know, working with teams and helping people to relate better to people and to understand people a little bit better. I'm really glad to have the connections I have. And, and you know what, fuck Bo for what happened with Greg and Mary. It was a magical experience, an incredible escape. There were thousands of them, fans, deadheads, already camping out, days ahead of the show, more on their way, weaving their way over the connecting interstate in creatively painted and designed buses, on foot, thumbing it out on the venue's city streets, hoofing it in their tie-dyes, their burks, and dreadlocks. Nothing was gonna stop them, not inclement weather, not a lack of cash or food, and certainly not for lack of a ticket to the show they were all hell-bent on getting to. No one expected it, least of all the band themselves. The Grateful Dead, pretty much since their beginnings as a group. No matter what chaos or controversy stirred around them, they always maintained some level of success. Aside from a brief two-year hiatus from touring between 1974 and 1976, the band worked steadily, released music commercially through major labels, even their own. And throughout most of the 70s and early 80s, they partied with and collaborated with A-list names, celebrities, musicians, and athletes. Bob Dylan, Hall & Oates, Clarence Clemens of Bruce Springsteen's E Street Band, Francis Ford Coppola, Dan Aykroyd, and the NBA's Bill Walton among them. The Grateful Dead were counterculture as fuck, but by the end of the 80s, they were somehow becoming an American institution. Maybe it was sheer longevity. They had, after all, been together since 1965. 25 plus years and had outlasted most, if not all, of their Northern California musical peers. 
Jefferson Airplane, Big Brother and the Holding Company, Credence Clearwater Revival, Quicksilver Messenger Service, they were all gone. Yet here were the dead, still on the road, and perhaps more impressive, still selling out 10,000 plus seat venues and playing to an audience that was more dedicated than ever. And then, the unthinkable happened. After 22 years as a band, in 1987, the Grateful Dead, with its members now middle-aged, had themselves a bona fide pop hit. Touch of Grey is a song that is as unapologetically infectious as it is raw. It may or may not be about an epic cocaine hangover, and it is a song that would not be denied its due. It achieved ubiquitous play on American FM rock stations and on MTV, and so it blew up. And of course, so too did the Grateful Dead. The band were no longer some well-respected insiders band, the band that your older brother hipped you to after he came home from his freshman year at the University of Vermont for holiday break. A band that was passed down respectively from one generation to the next. A band with an implied ethos that separated them from their nihilistic rock star peers. An ethos that meant peace and love and music you can not only just listen to, but actually be a part of. And they were now, with a massive hit blowing mainstream wind into their sails, truly America's band. Every stoned, drunk, frisbee-throwing jock, meathead, frat kid, nerd, drug-peddling, eternal buzz-seeking head in America pocketed their hacky sacks, donned their finest drug rugs, and went out searching for dead tickets. Because when the dead came to town, that meant there was a party going on, and it was wild. With the right connections inside the sacred walls of whatever venue was housing the Grateful Dead's live show that night, there was a righteous supply of grass, LSD, mushrooms, and nitrous oxide balloons. There was dancing in the aisles, good vibes aplenty and perma-smiles, smoking hot hippie chicks in cut-off jeans and cut frat boys recently liberated from their Oxfords. And depending on the night, there may have even been great music. By the late 80s, Jerry Garcia's heroin habit and declining health had marred the band with often uneven, if not totally uninspired, performances. Which isn't to say that the mountain of musical goodwill and communion built by the dead wasn't capable of catching fire on any given evening provided the right elements were in sync. But for the most part, the Grateful Dead experience was no longer about the music, it was about the party. I mean, sure, for some deadheads, a large majority actually, it would always be about the music. There were the fans who were known as so-called wharf rats who experienced the dead's live music free of chemicals, tapping out of time with the beat. And there were the tapers positioned at 12 o'clock, about 100 yards from the stage with their mobile microphones held high, there to capture the band's live set, dissect and compare it to the countless other sets recorded and passed around parking lots by deadheads. And there were also the occupants of the quote-unquote fill zone, zeroing in on the low undertow of bass, a palpable frequency laid down by bassist Phil Lesh that deadheads nicknamed Lesh's Earthquake. And of course, there were the spinners, members of an actual religion that had sprung up around the dead's traveling circus, who actually thought that Jerry Garcia was God, and they were easy to spot, spinning softly to the music in the crowd. But for a new, significant portion of those in attendance, dead shows became solely about the experience. Let's go see the dead on homecoming weekend, drop acid and scam chicks was just as likely a motivation as people joining hand in hand while the music played the band. Things got big, monstrous. And understandably so. For a young high school or college kid, when it came to the Grateful Dead experience, what wasn't there to be excited about? All that experiential energy wasn't just relegated to inside Dead shows. 
It all spilled out into the concert venue parking lots of the stadiums the Grateful Dead's new smash hit, Touch of Grey, now afforded them the opportunity to play into a truly original traveling hippie bazaar of sorts that was unique to this band and this band only. Around the Grateful Dead, a small society had sprung up of traveling deadheads who followed the band from show to show. To put it that way is an understatement. The most traveling deadheads made following the band their life, and the parking lot outside the show was their town square, or city square to be even more accurate. For most cases, the amount of people outside the shows was sometimes in the tens of thousands. Thousands of people who largely looked after themselves with deputized deadhead EMTs to take care of those who indulged too much, and with a traveling redemption center and hippie veterinarians to look after the pets. And there were teachers for the children, doulas to deliver the children at dead shows who were conceived at previous dead shows. It was a real community with people who really cared about one another and the band they were devoting their lives to. And it was in the parking lots where the real party went down. Drum circles for days. More drugs, ecstasy, coke, smack, whatever you wanted, really. Dead parking lots became LSD depots for hometown suppliers looking to re-up and flood their local communities with the premium psychedelic in return for quick, hard cash. As was to be expected, there was endless grass and also ass, though few deadheads cared. A pole of deadheads in John Scott's Dead Base, otherwise known as the Deadhead Bible, placed sex very low on their list of priorities. At the bottom, actually, just above money, which made sense given that you didn't really need money to travel with the band. I mean, eventually your beaded necklace business would dry up and you'd be forced to steal or barter sex for Wonder Bread and Cheese, the necessary supplies to work in your makeshift grilled cheese station down on Shakedown Street in order to put some scratch together for gas or whatever, but otherwise cash could be worked around. To travel with the dead was to be free. More than a party, it was a vehicle to avoid the straight world, to avoid the nine to five, but it came at a price. At night, in the parking lot, shit got mean. The hippy-dippy communal good time vibes and the deadhead ethos of peace and love and music that you can be part of eventually went to bed and out came the wolves. 3 a.m. after the show, you don't have to go home, but you can't stay here and ruin our fucking town with your patchouli stank and your stalled gypsy caravan. Local cops, after the show let out, had little patience for straggling deadheads and when no one was looking, didn't hesitate to get violent to clear the lots. The cops weren't the only ones showing their true colors after dark. Coke fiends got more desperate, junkies got more craven. Camping deadheads were robbed, assaulted, and otherwise taken advantage of by the bad actors who penetrated the peaceful makeshift traveling communes. But it didn't matter. Every night they'd hang it up to see what tomorrow brings. Then in the morning, they'd pack up their camps, gas up their buses, and head to the next city the Grateful Dead were playing to do it all over again, no matter the consequences. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. 
Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's Lifetime Membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million families building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. That's greenlight.com slash odyssey. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Bo was mostly a mystery. But as I talked to more and more people, a few things about him were known for sure. A tall, blonde-haired guy. A hippie who sold tie-dyes outside of Grateful Dead shows. Who, after the murders for a short period of time, lived with Robert and Chico. But according to Anne and Dave... Bo was originally from Santa Cruz. I had been friends with Bo on and off in 1985. I camped with him in the woods in Santa Cruz. He hung out in Santa Cruz. There's very little information about Mary or Greg available on the internet. But after a little bit of searching, I found that Mary's mother, Patricia, had written a book about her daughter's murder. So I bought it and almost immediately found something very interesting. The days of Mary and Greg's life leading up to their murders are very murky. Where were they? What were they doing? Where did they come from? According to the book, Mary mailed her mother a letter on August 13, 1985, just two days before she was killed. It was postmarked in Oakland, which is right next to the Berkeley Marina, so she was already in the area of Rainbow Village. But there was something else that I noticed, too. In the bottom corner, Mary had written in multicolor letters, and it said your long-lost daughter, Mary, Santa Cruz, California. This letter was written in Santa Cruz. Is it possible that Mary knew Bo? Bo was Jim Bowen. He was a real person. I'm back with Alex Reisman, Ralph's attorney throughout his appeal process. Anderson was able to argue a trial. There's no Bo. That just shows you how little investigation and no corroboration of Vivian Searcy's story was done. Zero. There was no follow-up on Bo at all. According to Alex, the prosecution had argued that Bo simply didn't exist. Bo is real. I have never met him. It was not a complicated problem to put Bo together with Jim Bowen. Jim Bowen was the man who was Bo. There was no question. People knew who he was. He was a factor. He was a figure. And he was present up until the murders. He was present all the time. It was no secret. And it was certainly reinforced by all the investigation we were able to do. According to the court documents, a deadhead named Zhang Cho 
was in Rainbow Village around the time of the murders. On the morning after, Cho was on a bus with Weston and Bo, parked inside the village. Mary's body had just been discovered in the water. In making conversation, Cho asked the both of them what they had done the night before. Bo replied, we went swimming in the bay last night. Right when he said it, Weston jabbed Bo in the ribs, gave him a concerned look, and immediately broke off the conversation. According to Cho, it was right after this that Bo and Weston both left Rainbow Village in a hurry. He said, I went swimming in the bay. Kind of ties into what Vivian Cersei saw him do when he came out and washed his hands. Weston said his wingman jabbed him in the ribs, made a shut up indication, and that's when they left Rainbow Village right after that. This combined with Dave's story starts to feel pretty powerful. I killed a brother over a woman. That's an amazing piece of evidence. Alabama Dave met Bo in Santa Cruz, and Bo confessed to him that he had killed a brother over a woman. In the context of all of the circumstantial evidence, it's an important piece. You've got someone seeing him there angry that night, Vivian Cersei seeing him there angry that night. Look at what Bo did at the time to avoid prosecution, to avoid being found out. He took every step he could to try and stay out of the dead scene, to not come back to it. I don't think that this is someone who's anxious to take responsibility for what he did, if he did it. <laughs> That's not what I see from, and of course it's 35 years later. So what do I know? You know, what do I know what Bo would do now? The Bo that I saw the evidence of then was actively trying to avoid apprehension. I have to honestly say, I never saw it as my role to convict Bo. That was not my job. My job was to defend N and to show that the evidence pointing to N was weak and evidence pointing to another person who was Bo was very strong. That's as far as I went and would go, frankly. If you can move the ball further than we move the ball, further toward the truth, that is a good thing for people to have closure and for the crime to be fully solved. Murder is a case that has no statute of limitations. He could be prosecuted. After talking to Dave, he introduced me to an old friend of his named Megan. He didn't go into much detail other than the fact that she too had her own piece to the puzzle. So I gave her a call. And the first thing she told me was how convinced she was that Ralph International Thomas was innocent. There's no doubt in my mind that he didn't do it. And I've been saying that and told these investigators this for 35 years. But this wasn't just her gut feeling. It was based on her own firsthand account. On the night of the murders, Megan was in Rainbow Village too. And she remembers vividly when the gunshots went off. We heard the gunshots and the gunshots were maybe about a quarter of a mile away, I would say. And International was right there, standing around talking to us when we heard the gunshots. International was right there. Thanks for checking out Dead and Gone. 
Dead and Gone is written, hosted, and produced by Payne Lindsay and myself, Jake Brennan. Check out my other music and true crime podcast, Disgraceland, about musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly, as well as Payne's other shows, Radio Rental, Atlanta Monster, and Up and Vanished. Dead and Gone is a production of Tenderfoot TV and Double Elvis and brought to you by Cadence 13 and executive produced by Donald Albright, Payne Lindsay, Brady Sadler, and myself. This show is produced by Mike Rooney, mixed by Cooper Skinner, music by Makeup and Vanity Set, with additional music services by Ryan Spraker, edited by Sean Cahalan, production coordination by Matt Bowden, copy edited by Pat Healy, writing assistance by Taylor Bettinson, cover design by Matt Mills for mattmillsart.com. Special thanks to Oren Rosenbaum and Grace Royer from UTA, Ryan Nord, Jesse Nord, and Matthew Papa from The Nord Group, Chris Corcoran and the Cadence 13 team, Beck Media and Marketing, Station 16, and the teams at Tenderfoot TV and Double Elvis. Thanks for checking out Dead and Gone. Episodes drop every Thursday. Please make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, leave a review on Apple Podcasts or give us a shout out on social media with the hashtag Dead and Gone, and you might win a free Dead and Gone show poster designed by Nate Gonzalez. Thanks for your support. Hold up. 